This is the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. My name is Rodney Benner. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at the Shelbourne Knee Center, and I am here with my co-host, Scott Bauman, for tonight's episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the use of tourniquets in total knee arthroplasty, and this is a topic that has come up more in uh, recent years, uh, but it's got an interesting background when it comes to the rationale behind avoiding tourniquet use or your, or using the tourniquet in total knees, the reasons to do it, reasons to not do it. I'll try to give you a little background on the literature as well as some data from our office, as we always like to add in as well, our own experience. Yeah, this is a project that I really enjoyed working on with you. I know, obviously, this is mostly a surgical decision, but from a rehab standpoint, we always discuss this in, in PT school and, you know, continuing ed classes and whatnot on the implications that a tourniquet can cause from a rehab perspective, which was interesting because I was curious to see, you know, is it going to lead to better motion or less pain? Pain is really the, the biggest one, and, and I know that may be a factor in why you choose not to use a tourniquet, but from a rehab perspective, that's one thing we see after surgery. And with this study is something we're going to talk about tonight, uh, looking at tourniquet use versus not using a tourniquet during total knees. Dr. Benner, can you speak to the rationale behind this study? Well, I think the vast majority of surgeons do use a tourniquet for knee replacement, and the, the advantage of using the tourniquet is a pretty obvious one in that the intraoperative visualization, being able to see what you're doing in surgery is no doubt about it, 100% far superior having a tourniquet on. There's a It's a pretty bloodless field. Um, you're not continuously suctioning and struggling to see things in the back of the knee. Um, you're not having to stop and cauterize bleeders the entire time, and you can be pretty efficient and zip right along without any without any slowing down now i will say you know one, one what i noticed when i started doing these without tourniquet was maybe that wasn't as big of an issue as i previously thought but um but that's the the obvious one is surgical efficiency intraoperative visualization is no doubt about it better with a tourniquet however tourniquetless has some pretty clear advantages in the literature and you know if you think about you know, I think about if I go to get my blood pressure checked, we we inflate the tourniquet on my arm for 30 seconds and to, to 200 millimeters of mercury or 180 or whatever it takes to take my blood pressure, and it's a little uncomfortable to have it on there. So if you, you think the, the inflating a tourniquet on the proximal thigh to 300 millimeters of mercury for an hour or more, you know, sometimes it, it's it's not a trivial amount of uh, of trauma, I guess, to, to the proximal thigh, uh, having the tourniquet on for that long. There's some concern about uh, weakness associated with squeezing on the thigh for that long. There's worry about even some low-level denervation uh, type changes to the muscle uh, where the nerve signals aren't getting there as well. And then there's also the question of potentially having some thigh pain associated with, with tourniquet use not just during the surgery, but in the early post-op period. And does that cause uh, and do all of those together lead to the patient feeling more uncomfortable, being more painful and have a slower return of uh, having a slower return of quad function? Like I said, I, I totally understand why most surgeons do it, but uh, but I was kind of a slow adapter to it uh, over the course of the first 10, 12 years of my practice here. Uh, now I do it pretty routinely. You did a pretty good job hitting the pros and cons of both using a tourniquet and not using a tourniquet during surgery. Just curious, and I know a couple of years ago we were at the academy meeting, I uh, forget where, but for the AAOS uh, annual meeting, and there was a lot of talk on this debate of using a tourniquet or not. What do you feel like is the industry standard right now, and what do you see most surgeons using and, and why? 
I still think most people are doing surgery with the tourniquet in place for the reasons I discussed before. They just uh, they they just feel more comfortable in uh, being able to see everything they can see and being efficient, uh, which all all of us want that. And and I can tell you from my, from my own personal experience, I didn't want to change. I didn't come about this in seeing any kind of a problem with having the tourniquet necessarily. I just uh, had a couple situations for me. What 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 really drove me to it was I had a couple situations where I I had to not to not be able to use tourniquet. Uh, and that was really for patients with vascular issues. We worry about if you see a big calcified popliteal artery on x-ray and you worry about those vascular calcifications leaving that uh, that artery or more proximally superficial femoral artery more uh, susceptible to injury from the tourniquet, of course, we don't want to cause any vascular problems. So I would send some of those patients for vascular referrals. And there were a couple of them that I was told you, you shouldn't use a tourniquet. One in particular that I remember very vividly is a guy who's in his early 50s. He wasn't even that old. Uh, he wanted to have both of his knees done at the same time, but he had a bad cardiac history, had a bad history of peripheral vascular disease. He'd had stents in both femoral arteries arteries uh, and had almost lost his leg from a previous vascular injury. So this guy comes to me wanting both of them done at the same time. That was an easy one. Uh, no, I'm not doing both of them at the same time with all of that. Uh, he also was on blood thinners that uh, his vascular surgeons told him, uh, you need to be off of as little as possible. We want you to have uh, Lovenox injections all the way up to the night before surgery. We want you back on full dose Lovenox as quickly as your surgeon, as me, as, as quickly as I would allow them to. And absolutely absolutely no doubt about it. No tourniquet on the thigh. Um, and I agreed to do this guy's surgery, but I can tell you, I was, it was a, I was a nervous, it, it was a nervous one for me, uh, having not done tourniquetless total knee before. So you have this impression when you've been doing with tourniquets, your entire training and career, that as soon as you make an incision, there's just going to be blood everywhere. Uh, and, and, and it just doesn't go that way, especially if you have an anesthesiologist who does a good job of taking care of, uh, a blood pressure, you make that initial incision. There's not that much bleeding. You buzz it with some, uh, with the soft tissue bleeders with a, uh, with a bovie and pretty quickly it's, it's stopped. And within a few seconds, you're already making your arthrotomy. Once you make the arthrotomy, there are some more vigorous bleeders that you do have to get control of, but it's pretty, it's relatively quick to be able to do it. And, um, you know, what I figured out over time was the, the quicker that I could make the exposure, flex the knee, put in retractors, which caused some tension on those bleeders, everything pretty much dried up pretty quickly. Once I did that the first couple of times in situations where I absolutely had to because of vascular compromise, I was surprised by how little of an intrusion that was into into my surgery. So um, that's where I started to, to think about maybe tourniquet list being something we could we could potentially do more uh, more frequently. So you mentioned that most surgeons are still using the tourniquet. Does the literature back that up or what does the literature say about tourniquet use during surgery? Well, as I got more interested in this and and, and really I had a, a rep approach me about uh, a device that I used for a long time to uh, to be able to do tourniquetless total knees. They got me thinking about it, and she presented me with a lot of data that's out there on in the literature on tourniquetless total knee. And I was surprised to find when I reviewed it, you have a hard time finding too much 
in the literature that actually favors the tourniquet. Uh, almost everything favors tourniquetless, uh, and there's evidence of uh, you know uh, there's evidence of some quicker uh, recovery uh, parameters. Um, no difference really in bleeding, um, and that that part of that was using tranexamic acid as well, which we can talk about a little more. But um, no difference in bleeding or blood transfusions or change in hemoglobin things like that with not using the tourniquet, and that uh, that the efficiency things really weren't that different. So after reviewing the literature and seeing that the advantages were almost all for not using the tourniquet, uh, that really got me thinking about it even more. Now, you mentioned the tranexamic acid. How much does that play into the results of this, or how much does that play into the decision-making for using a tourniquet or not? Yeah, I think that was a, you know, tranexamic acid has been a game changer when it, when it, as it relates to blood management and total knee arthroplasty that I think really is, is pretty universal now. I think that's by far become the standard of care uh, where in that transitions happened since I've been in practice. When I, when I first started practice uh, in 2012, there were people using it, but it was relatively small. And over the course of the next five or six years, everybody was using it. I remember going to a meeting and listening to some studies about it and somebody presented data from the knee society i think it was in 2012 14 and 16 but i'm not sure somewhere around that time where the first time they surveyed the group only like 15 percent of them were using tranexamic acid two years later they surveyed them again and 50 percent of them were using it two years later they surveyed them again and 85 percent of them were using it so that was that was the time when I came back home after that meeting, thinking, "No, nah, I'm behind. I'm behind the curve here. I got I got to start doing this." And you know, we can talk about tranexamic acid on on another episode as well. But uh, that's made blood management much easier, and it's definitely made me feel more comfortable. And it was a was a significant factor uh, when trying to assess whether or not tourniquetless was the right thing. Now, are you using that medication with just about everybody? And I really use that universally. There was some concern early on in our experience of tranexamic acid for people that had clotting disorders or heart diseases or other things that made them high risk. And there's been a pretty large volume of literature now that's shown that even in high-risk patients, uh, making adjustments to your tranexamic acid protocol is really unnecessary. So all that brings us back to the point that we really want to hit tonight, and that's the study that we conducted looking at the results of using a tourniquet and not using a tourniquet at the time of surgery. So can you go about and, and tell us a little bit about how that study came to be? Yeah, I mean, I really wasn't – this was really – pretty minimally on my radar screen in about uh, 2017, 2018, uh, when I was, when I was, uh, it was pitched to me by uh, Medtronic rep using, about using Aquamanus to, as a tool to be able to do tourniquetless total knees. And that's where, I, as I said earlier, I was presented a lot of the literature and really kind of brought it to the forefront for me. And I did it a couple of times thinking, you know what, I need to see if this fits into my practice. And Pretty quickly, like I said, I, my, my experience was that the bleeding control wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. The quicker that I got the knee exposed and got the knee flexed and got retractors placed, put some tension on those soft tissues, the quicker everything would slow down, especially with tranexamic acid on board. So that's when I started using this. And uh, Medtronic then approached us later on about looking at our, our data on this and actually funded a study. So full disclosure, we did we did get a funded study going with Medtronic to look at uh, to look at this data. But like everything, I think, you know, we talked about 
about this a little bit in our zipline study last week. I kind of try to use that model that we used in that study and this study as a way that I that I approach new thing new things like tourniquet lists, like uh, like uh, the zipline, where I, I try to see if it makes sense to me in theory first, and if it does, then I try it on a small scale, and if I seem to see some some uh, improvements, then we try to put it to the put it to the test uh, once we start using it and make sure that it that it that the data backs it up. So once you met with who, whoever you needed to meet with and got this study up and running, can you describe the methodology and what you were exactly looking for with this? So we had used tourniquet lists quite a bit uh, before they approached us about the study. And when we sat down with them to, to try to figure out what we really wanted to go after, we wanted to look at some of those functional parameters to see if there was an early rehabilitation advantage in a primary total knee replacement if we did not use the tourniquet. So we actually looked at 69 consecutive primary total knees that were done that had a minimum of one year follow-up, and then we wanted to match them. So we did one-to-one -one matching with uh, patients who were the same sex, same age, same body mass index or similar body mass index, similar age uh, that underwent primary total knee, uh, which did have a tourniquet. So we had a total of 138 patients, 69 in each group. Uh, I did all the, all the knees. So the, 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 uh, the operation was pretty standardized, same kind of, uh, medial peripatellar arthrotomy, no tourniquet train examic acid protocol was the same. And then the rehabilitation protocol was the same, uh, as well, but in both the tourniquet and the tourniquet list cases, we then looked at isokinetic strength, range of motion, timed up and go or tug test assisted device use, uh, some uh, parameters about blood management, length of stay in operating room time, and the COOS data uh, that we collect on each, each patient at uh, various time points before, during, and after surgery. And then we tried to compare those groups to see if there were any advantages of not using the tourniquet. And our hypothesis was really that the tourniquetless group was going to have some early functional improvements, some early functional advantages over the group that was done on tourniquet. So knowing you were looking at all those variables and that the methods are what they are, what were the results that you found? Well, because we did one-to-one -one matching, the demographic data was was pretty similar um, between the two. When looking at range of motion, the extension range of motion was not different, but the mean flexion and the total arc of motion was statistically significantly better in the tourniquetless group, really at all time points versus those that were done with tourniquet. But they had statistical significance at two weeks, one month, and two months for flexion and the total arc of motion at two weeks. So we did see an early range of motion benefit in not using the tourniquet. Quadriceps strength was used, uh, was compared to the contralateral knee with isokinetic testing at 120 degrees per second on a Cybex, and it was statistically significantly higher at the one, six, and 12-month time periods post-op in the tourniquet list group, so a strength advantage as well. When we looked at pain scores, the tug test, assisted device use, there was really no difference between the two groups, and the same was true of the CUS subjective scores were similar in both groups with the total score and the and the subgroup. There was one time point at the one month mark where there was statistically significantly higher scores in the tourniquetless group and just the symptom subscale. And then there was one that was statistically significantly higher for the tourniquet group at the two months in the sport subscale. Not sure what to really make of those when the vast majority of the COOS data uh, showed no difference. When we looked at length of stay, there was a small length of stay advantage in the tourniquetless group. But to be honest with you, even though this is my study and I and I, and I have that there in it, I'm not a big fan of length of stay uh, as a parameter when we're look when we're looking over various time points. So, as I'm sure lots of people do, there's an evolution over time of uh, of, of length of stay. A lot of people have gone to outpatient 
now and i really get everybody home the next day uh, now where i used to hold was much used to be much more likely to hold people for a couple of days so even though the length of stay is a little bit better in the tourniquetless group i think if i redid this study today in a randomized controlled fashion uh, i don't think that would be different uh, when we looked at hemoglobin values, um, they were slightly higher in the tourniquet group. However, it was clinically insignificant. Our mean hemoglobin on post-op day one in the tourniquet group was 11.6, and the tourniquetless group was 11.1. So even though it was statistically significantly different, I think it'd be hard to argue that that was a clinically significant difference. And there was no difference in transfusion rates uh, between the two groups as well. So the blood management was pretty equivalent. Last but not least, the in-room operating time was actually lower in the tourniquetless group by about 10 minutes. And I, I thought for a while when I first saw that, am I just getting better over time? And uh, have I gotten faster and more efficient? And that that is probably a part of it as this was this study was done over the course of a few years uh, early on in my practice where I, where I do feel like I was getting uh, more efficient. However, I also think that sometimes we struggle to get the tourniquet on and it takes a few minutes uh, especially in people with bigger legs, sometimes it'll slide down after you put it on the first time. You got to take the whole thing off, get another assistant maybe to help you pull on the thigh to, to get it a little bit higher. And, and uh, then also sometimes if the tourniquet's not working very well during surgery, again, on bigger legs in particular, sometimes you have to put the tourniquet down. You have to let it rest a little bit if you have a venous tourniquet and then put it back up. And I believe that's that's the, one of the differences that we saw in the in-room surgical time being actually slightly higher in the tourniquet group. Now, going back to the more rehab measures of range of motion and strength, you mentioned that extension range of motion was not different between the groups. However, flexion and arc of motion was specifically at the early time point where it was statistically significantly different at two weeks, again, favoring the tourniquetless group. And then similar with the quadricep strength on the isokinetic test, you found that the tourniquetless group had higher strength values. Now, typically, if I were to hear just those results, I, I would chalk that up to maybe they had less pain early on and they were able to get more motion, especially. And, you know, maybe better motion leads to better strength. But uh, it was also found that pain scores weren't really different between the two groups, at least statistically. So what's your thought on why the tourniquetless group had better range of motion early uh, as well as having better strength throughout every time point? Well, I think it depends when you ask for the pain scores, whether the patient's just done therapy or not. It depends whether you ask, uh, you know, if you ask the patient how much pain have they had over the course of the whole day versus how much pain do you have when you bend your knee versus how much pain do you have when you go, when you put your knee out straight and do, for example, a heel prop or a towel stretch, trying to get it out straight. How much pain do you have when you're walking as opposed to at rest? So even though we do have a pain score and those pain scores don't seem to be a lot different, I think specifically to getting better flexion, I think that really relates to pain with flexion. And it seems to be, uh, seems to make sense that if the tourniquet is put on for an hour or so and there's some more thigh pain and thigh discomfort just with the flexion, that that would lead to a difference in flexion range of motion. And maybe it just didn't affect people as much in extension. Now, we don't have any data to tell us that for sure. We didn't specifically query the patients on how much pain they had with knee flexion as opposed to just asking them for a general pain score. That would be a potential way to answer that question. But uh, I think it just, just means that their knee was more comfortable when they bent it uh, if they didn't have the tourniquet on. So hearing those results and looking at the differences between those two groups, what's your takeaway with this study? What was the clinical relevance and how has this changed your practice going forward? Well, I think our study was really in line with others that have looked at some potential advantages of 
going tourniquetless with total knee replacement, but provided a little more specific detail and a little more specific measurements with regard to range of motion and strength um, that uh, maybe wasn't out there in the literature. So those were the things that we were hoping we were going to see when we went tourniquetless was that it might make people feel a little more comfortable with range of motion and uh, and get, get their strength back a little bit quicker. And that is what we saw. So, you know, with that, we then uh, started using it more, more, um, more regularly. And now I, I, I don't ever use a tourniquet on a uh, primary total knee. A lot of people will put a tourniquet on during the case and use it during cementation. I really don't do that either. The cut bone surfaces, by the time we get to the point where we're cementing are pretty clean. I always pressure uh, irrigate those with a pulse lavage to clean out any blood or marrow debris from the cut bone surfaces. I feel like we get really good cementation on our post-operative x-rays, uh, even though we do not put up the tourniquet, though some people do still want to do that. Other people will say, you know, I worry about not having it on, so they'll still put the tourniquet on, but then won't use it if they don't feel like they need it, but they have it if, if they have it available. Over the course of now almost five years of doing tourniquetless total knees, I don't even put one on. I don't even think about it anymore. And knock on wood, uh, it's been a it's been a good improvement. And I feel like it's part of a stepwise progression that we've had over time of make a small change and see an improvement. Make a small change, see an improvement. Continuous uh, incremental progress, uh, I think, is the way that. I've been able to improve things in our office, and I think it's something that Dr. Shelbourne did over time with ACL reconstruction, which a lot of a lot of people know more about our clinic through through his experience with ACL tears uh, and ACL reconstruction. So this has been a, another piece of incremental improvement that we've been able to make, and it has changed my practice in that now 100% of primary total knees are done without tourniquet. Well, excellent. Thanks for going over that. I, I think that's a great study highlighting the differences between these two groups and answering the question why you don't use a tourniquet anymore with these primary total knees. So I appreciate you going over that. Join us next week. We're going to have a special guest on with us. Dr. Mark Harrow, orthopedic surgeon from South Carolina, has a history with uh, working with Dr. Shelburne in our office. We're going to be discussing the management of lateral side injuries, in particular those that are seen at the time of ACL surgery. So it's going to be a good discussion with Dr. Harrow and uh, join us next week. As always, hit us up on our socials. If you want to leave any comments or ask any questions, you can find us at the SKC Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. You can go to the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast Facebook page. Uh, you can catch us on YouTube if you want to hear our podcast there. You can find us there as well, as well as anywhere else you get your podcasts. And also, if you like our content that you've gotten so far, uh, please leave us a review and some comments so other people can get some information about the podcast as well. We would also like to hear from you via email at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. We are going to try to do a mailbag episode in the future. So if you've heard our content so far and have any questions, please pass them along. We'll see you next week. <laughs>